are listening to an extra shot episode on the Project Zion podcast, a shorter episode that lets you get your Project Zion fix in between our full-length episodes. It might be shorter time-wise, but hopefully not in content. So regardless of the temperature at which you prefer your caffeine, sit back and enjoy this extra shot. I saw an article recently that said that half of millennials believe that the American dream is dead. And uh, I must say that I was kind of surprised to see that statistic. I mean, only half? Um, at, At 35, I'm on the upper boundary of the millennial spectrum, some would argue if I count, but um, I don't think I know anyone my age or younger who'd say that it's alive and well. There's a decided distrust of traditional institutions in my generation, a suspicion and sometimes hostility that pervades everything. According to the Pew Research Center, millennials are the least likely of any generation to be affiliated with a political party, to identify as religious, or to enter the institution of marriage uh, when compared to older generations at the age that millennials are now. They're distrustful of leaders. They're saddled with debt And they're the first generation in American history to say that the world they are inheriting is worse than the ones their parents did. And I don't know, maybe this is just my signature millennial mistrust shining through, but I don't, you know, I don't think they're wrong. (laughs) Every day, our politicians make promises they can't keep. Our parents told us that hard work and dedication are all we needed to achieve anything, but that has not proven true. We're the most educated generation in history. We went to college in droves because they told us that's how we'd make a living, and we came out the other side with mountains of student debt and few job prospects in a struggling economy. In today's reading, the Israelites are encountering perhaps a similar moment of disillusionment. They've been wandering in the desert for decades, And now their water supply has dried up, threatening their livestock as well. It is a serious predicament. After all, water is life. Would that we had died, the Israelites say, when they see what has happened. To Moses, their prophet and liberator, they complain, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this awful place? Our livestock die here. It is no place for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. But after decades in the wilderness, the Exodus dream is dead, and there seems little hope to restore it. The Midrash tells us that the water was directly connected to Miriam. Moses' sister, and a powerful prophet in her own right. Miriam possessed a porous stone 
that would roll along with the travelers, and every night when the Israelites made camp, so the Midrash says, it would gush forth 12 streams of water, one for each of the 12 tribes. It was called Miriam's Well. But upon Miriam's death, as recorded at the beginning of today's reading, the well stops working. And so, according to the Midrash, Miriam's death is the cause of the drought the Israelites are experiencing. In some of the commentaries, Miriam's well is connected with the gift of manna. Manna, of course, is the edible substance that God provides for the Israelites in the wilderness, a miraculous food that replenishes every morning. But there are conditions attached. You can only gather what you need for the day. If you attempt to hoard it or store it up, it grows worms overnight and spoils. And so here you have the story of God's miraculous provision for the children of Israel. Both their food and their water supply were provided by God. And for both their food and their water, they were given enough each day for that day's needs. They couldn't store it up, but were to accept today's gifts today and trust that tomorrow's gifts would come tomorrow. This has profound resonances with Jesus' teaching on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, who, you know, he very well may have been thinking of these stories when he taught as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring enough worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now, I don't know about you, but for me anyway, this is almost impossible. <laughs> I am a worrier. I love to worry. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I love the way it makes me feel necessarily, um, but I do love the way it kind of gives me some illusion of control. Or maybe not like, you know, control exactly, but more like preparation. Like, if I can just imagine enough scenarios of how, how everything could go completely to hell, then uh, chances are good that at some point, maybe like at least one of those scenarios might come true, and then at least I'll be, you know, ready for it. The trouble is, I don't think I'm alone. I think that in many ways, our entire culture, our entire society might just be built on anxiety on those shifting, hazy, what-if questions that never really have an answer but that consume our imaginations anyway. Like, what if the wrong people come to our country? Build a wall. Or what if they attack us? Attack them first. Or what if I'm not enough? Spend more, buy more stuff. What if I get lonely? Swipe right. Yes, we build, attack, 
spend, swipe, rage, and hoard in order to keep our anxiety at bay. In the United States, it's estimated that between 30 and 40 percent of the food supply is wasted. That's 60 metric tons of food each year. According to the Waste and Resources Action Program, a British anti-waste organization, the food we waste in the West could feed all 870 million of the world's starving people. But what would happen if we stopped, took a deep breath, and trusted God? What if we really believed that when we were hungry, God would send bread? That when we were thirsty, God would send water? That we could take each day as it comes in faith that tomorrow would indeed take care of itself? How would that change how and what we build? The decision to attack or seek peace on what we spend our money with, with whom we engage in community and when and how we give of our abundance. What if our very understanding of abundance were changed from excess to enough? Wouldn't that change everything? Understood in this context, God's provision for the Israelites with manna and Miriam's well and Jesus' command not to worry is not just about avoiding unpleasant feelings of stress and anxiety. It's not a mere psychological cure for the restlessness and vapidity of Western consumer culture. It is an entire social revolution. And it is the very heart of the gospel that in relinquishing to God, our need to control and manage our anxiety, which is only ever an illusion anyway, we are caught up in the overflowing abundance of God's grace, a grace that follows us in the wilderness of our lives, like a porous rock that rolls alongside us and every night gushes forth enough, more than enough, and not just for us, but for everyone. What if we built our society on that instead of the petty fears and anxieties that consume us? Maybe there's a reason my entire generation has become disillusioned. We were taught to trust the American dream. We should have been trusting God's dream. And as nice as it may be, the American dream is far too narrow and far too shallow to even hold a candle to the thirst-quenching abundance of God's love. Maybe it's a good thing that dream has died. The response of Moses and Aaron to the disillusionment of their people is telling. When the drought comes, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God and would that all our leaders would do something similar. The glory of the Lord appears to them and instructs them to command the rock to yield its water. Moses strikes the rock twice, water gushes forth, and the Israelites' thirst is relieved. John Marbo, the pastor at Zion Lutheran, where I'm doing contextual work this semester, pointed out to me this morning that even that scene is not without human dysfunction. 
Everyone's angry. Moses is angry. Aaron is angry. The people are angry. It's not as if they respond with perfect faith and humility. They are the way we all tend to feel when we need something because it cuts through our illusion that we're (laughs) self-sufficient. They're resentful. They're upset. But despite their bad attitude, God sends the water anyway. It's because this does not depend on our good behavior, but on God's loving kindness. I find that very hopeful. This is a God whose graceful provision we can rely on. Our God, the rock, the bread of life, the living water is with us to satisfy our needs. God gives God's very self to us. Let's take and eat and drink. Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. The views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ.